Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be reading in verse 5 to uh, verse 11. Would you stand with me if you're physically able in reverence and respect and honor for God's precious word? Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. We talked about what we have in common that unifies us in the preceding chapter when Paul admonishes the church at Philippi to let their conduct be worthy of the gospel. And there are three things that we observe that unite us. We, first of all, we have one Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. He indwells every believer. Not every believer is filled with the Spirit, but every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then, because we have one Spirit, we have one mind. This is coming from verse 27 as well. One Spirit and one mind. And then also what unites us, uh, which we might not be too thrilled about sometimes, as believers, is suffering. In verse 29 it says that God has granted to us or graced us with the privilege of suffering on behalf of the sake of the gospel, on behalf of His sake. Now, when we looked at the fact that we have one mind, we said, what does that mind look at, look like? And we have it defined for us in verse 5. The text that we just read defines for us the mind that we have. Because after all, the Bible does say that we have the mind of Christ. So what does this mind look like? Well, here it is in verse 5 and following. So you know what, if you're going to abandon yourself, if you're not going to live for yourself but live for Him, if you're going to set aside your rights, we have precedent. We not only have the power to do that, we not only have the example to do that, but we're able to do that because of what Jesus, our Lord, did. Look at verse 5. Let this mind, let this mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, and that word means Literally, being everything that God is, in other words, He's God. And we talked about that just then, a few moments ago, that every heresy advanced by man is a heresy, and the central reason it's heresy is because of erroneous belief about the person, work, and witness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Let me say this to you. There are those, like the Mormons, who would claim that Jesus Christ became God. And that because He became God, you can become a God one day. But let me tell you this. The very definition of God itself demands that God always has been God, is God now, and always will be. Nobody can become God. We're like a, we're like a ray. We're like a point in time. You remember the geometry? Catherine and I are going through geometry right now. It's bringing up terrible memories in my mind. <laughs> And, you know, a ray in geometry has a point, a starting point, and it has a line that goes on to denote that there's a definite starting point, but there's no end. That's who we are. But Jesus Christ, God, is a line. And He has no beginning, and He has no end, and there's nobody else like Him. Jesus Christ did not come to the earth, and because of His faithful, loyal service to God, and because of His death on the cross, and His, his holy life, 
is rewarded in heaven with God's status. He came as God. He always has been God. He's God now, and He always will be God. And guess what? You and I never will be God. Let's get that straight. He's being in the form of God, but yet did not consider that robbery to be equal with God. He did, in other words, in verse 7, it says he made himself of no reputation. The best way to say that, and maybe it might say it in your version, is he emptied himself. He took all the rights and privileges as he had as God, did not stop becoming God, couldn't do that, but set aside those rights and privileges, humbled himself, and took on human flesh. Now, we've talked about this before in our Roman study. We're going through this. There are some mystery unions in the Bible, some mysterious things that we have to believe, but we cannot understand. One of them is the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery union. How that God could be three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. We can't understand that, but, buddy, the Bible teaches it, and we can flat believe it. Remember, our understanding is not our authority. The Word of God is. If we wait until we understand something to believe it, we're going to be in for a long wait. Now, let me tell you another mystery union in the Bible. The union that Jesus has with His church. The Bible says we're wedded to Christ. We're the bride of Christ and that we're baptized into His literal spiritual loins. We are in Christ. We used to be in union with Adam. Now we're in union with Christ. That's a mystery union. I mean, I don't quite understand all of that, but I believe it and receive it because the Word of God is my authority, not my understanding. And let me tell you another mystery union in the Bible is that God became a man. How could it be that God could be fully God and be fully man at the same time? But in the per person, work, and witness of Jesus Christ, God became a man. He took on human flesh. That's what the Bible says. He, he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. And he's the perfect man. Because what he did was is he emptied himself and was totally dependent upon the Father. He depicts man as man ought to be. Emptied of eating selfish ambition. Emptied of any pride. Emptied of any agenda. I did not come to do my will, but the will of one who sent me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when that those two natures were wrestling with one another. And he said, not my will, but thine be done nevertheless. But God, let's look at it one more time. Is there another way to accomplish this? Is there another way to fulfill this mission other than the cross and taking up the wrath, the cup of wrath poured out on me for Lindsay Lewis's sins? Is there any other way to redeem him? And the word comes back and says, no, son, this is the only way. And Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done. In the Garden of Eden, man fell. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus overcame. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And so because He overcame, we're overcomers. This has been bequeathed to us. This nature, this mind is my right, my access. He's my portion. He's your portion. I can live like this. Made Himself of no reputation. He emptied Himself. It's foreign to us nowadays to think of somebody who would lay aside their rights. We have a government that's $14 trillion in debt with no end in sight. And that is going to ruin and cripple this country. It's on the way to doing it now. It's probably the greatest security threat to the United States. You know why that is? Because millions of dollars are spent every day for somebody to go up to Congress and lobby for their rights. And guess what's happened? It's created gridlock in our government because everybody can't get a piece of the pie. Don't we do that as Christians? I have rights. I don't deserve to be treated like that. 
I don't deserve to be misunderstood like that. I don't deserve to go through this. We all say those remarks. We all make them. The pressure is too intense. I didn't sign up for this. We take a quick, abiding, truthful, long look at Calvary. And every bit of those thoughts will go out the window. My rights. Nobody has stretched this as far as God has. Nobody has gone so high and gone so low to cover everybody in between like God has. When you go from being God and having rights as God, remaining God, still having those rights, but purposely, on purpose, intentionally setting those aside to become a man and to come down here in this toilet of sin and just walk around in this toilet, this cesspool of polluted world that we live in, the God Himself who created it, and it fell through our prideful bent in Adam. And what did He do? Made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave. Taking the form of a slave. Didn't come and introduce to this world in a palace. He came in a stable. He did not come with flying colors with a good uh, reputation as a result of the way he got here. Came born of a virgin and was misunderstood from the beginning. His family misunderstood from the beginning. Accused from the beginning. It was a difficult start. And came and had all the limitations of men, but had all the power of God because he did empty himself. You only got two options. Either you can be full of you and emptied of Jesus, or emptied of you and full of Jesus. One or the other. It's going to be one or the other. We keep on holding on to our rights. We keep on asserting our position. We keep on calling the shots. We stay sovereign over our life. That means that we put aside no rights. That means that Jesus is resigned to a little portion of our life. That means He's just going to put... He's contained. He's managed. Most of us manage Jesus. Lord, here's my house. You move in. The title deed says you now. I'm the, your purchased possession. But there are certain rooms that you're not allowed access to. There's certain things about my past that I pet and I want to hang on to. I like the bondage I'm in to my past and you can't go there. There are certain things about my career choices and my future and how I'm going to handle myself, my marriage, and relationships not only at school but at work and in my community and you can't come in there. I've got certain, certain time constraints in my day and there are certain things that I've got to get done and you, I basically do not have room for you in that. Now, we never say that because it sounds awful. George Will, the political commentator, said that most Americans are philosophically conservative and operationally liberal. And I believe that's exactly what Christians are. We're mostly professional. Our profession is conservative, but our operation is liberal in the way we live. Because here's the bottom line, and this is the title of this message. You and I are either, we are either, we either live a life, we live either live a life, that confirms the gospel or is contradictory to the gospel, one or the other. 
We either confirm the gospel through the way that we live or we either, either we contradict the gospel, one or the other. And it all rises and falls based on this text. To constantly hold on to my rights, to constantly hold on to my reputation, to constantly hold on to the things I'm going to stand to lose anyway is to play the fool. It's to play the fool in Christian living. It's to say, Lord, I love the work of the cross for me, but I'm not too appreciative of the work of the cross that you want to do in me. I really don't care. Give me my ticket to heaven. I'll get there. Glory be. Hallelujah. I'll fly away. And all of that, mom and dad will see Aunt Mert. All of this will happen. But right now, for right now, it's just me. And I'll look to you every now and then. My, how we need revival. Being found as appearance of being, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He did not die of natural causes. Jesus didn't come down here and catch tuberculosis and die. He didn't come down here and have a cancer, a tumor that ate up his body. He came down here and what kind of death did he die? The most shameful death on the hands of the executioner as a criminal. Could not be more painful, could not be more shameful, could not be more debased. It was as low as you could get. That's why I say God's got the ground covered. He came from as high as you can get and went as low as you can get. So therefore, wherever you're at in that perspective, God's got you covered. And He's able to save the, the utmost those who come to God through Him. As I was going through this text, I was thinking about the order of things and how that Jesus... Being equal with God, what did he do? He took that equality that he had with God and he literally put himself under the authority of God while he was on earth. Equal with God, but yet under God's authority. I can't do anything on my own will or volition. I only do the will of the one who sent me. That's why I'm here. I don't have an agenda apart from what's given to me by God. I don't have a plan apart from what's given to me by God. I don't have a place to go apart from what's given me by God. I don't get a vote in all these matters. I don't get, a, it's not up for debate. Me and God don't meet and just throw the dice and say, how's it going to work out? I go to the Father, my humanity, I'm subservient to Him. I'm under His authority. Do you know how much power comes from being under authority? A Roman centurion once, a man, a Roman soldier, a Roman leader with a hundred people under his authority. Luke chapter 7 and the parallel passages in Matthew chapter 8 comes to, he sends messengers to Christ. He sends some Jewish elders to Christ to plead on behalf of a servant that he has who's sick. You remember the story. And they go and plead on his behalf and they say, listen, my, my master's servant, this guy is servant is sick. And Jesus, this guy gives to the synagogue. This guy helped build our last building. And he's a friend to the Jewish people, even though he's a Roman soldier. And he's a Roman centurion. And it'd be great if you'd come. This guy re reveres you. Finds out he's on his way. The Roman centurion says word and says, Lord, you know what? I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. But here's the deal. I just ask you, don't even come. Just say the word. If you say the word, my servant will be healed. You know what he said? Because I 
too am a man under authority. And when I tell one of my soldiers to go and do this, they go and do that. If I tell them to go and do this, they go and do that. He realized a scriptural principle that is embedded in this text. And that is this. Power does not come from being in authority. Power comes from being under authority. And Jesus went, Whoa! That's South Georgia. I haven't seen that kind of faith in all of Israel. It's a done deal. And what happened? Sermon was healed like that. He was marveled. He said, of all of you bunch that's got the Old Testament who's supposed to be looking for me, I haven't found this kind of faith among any of you except this Gentile guy right here. I too am a man under authority. The power of the blood of Christ to reach and redeem you and I came because He humbled Himself and put put Himself under the authority of God. That's a great principle. That's a great principle. And I'll tell you right now, just a couple of days ago, there's so many different ways to go with this. And here's where I believe that God had me land. Men, you are to be the spiritual leader in your home. Excuse me, there's a better way of saying that. You are the spiritual leader in your home. And you're either leading your family toward Jesus Christ or you're leading them away from Him. You're either complimenting the gospel by the way you lead, you're either confirming the gospel by the way you lead, or either you're contradicting it by the way you lead. Can I say this to your brothers? And I'm saying this to myself. You and I as men will put everything that we've got into our career. We'll spend and be spent in order to be good at what we do. We don't want our reputation around the office or around the corporation to be that of a slugger, a slack. We don't want to take advantage and we also don't, don't want what we don't work for and deserve and earn. We want that. But I can tell you this. We're willing to get the education and do everything that we possibly can do to be the best at what we can be. And I contend, I hold forth this. If we did that with our relationship with Jesus Christ, the church would be radically different. There's not an endeavor that you're involved in that it runs a close second to your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just a matter of knowing how and where to lead your wife and your children. It's a matter of personal devotion to Christ, that you are in His Word and you take time in His Word. The Bible says that Jesus, it was His custom to get off and retreat and get along with God, so much so that the disciples said this, teach us to pray. They didn't say, teach us to heal the blind. Teach us to heal a lame hand. Teach us to raise the dead. Teach us to do all these things. No, they said, teach us to pray. You know why? Because they realized by the fact that he was so often retreated and had time with the Father, they realized, you know what? His power comes from that time he spends over there. I don't know what goes on over there, but buddy, something happens when he emerges from there. We're going to Capernaum. We're going to Bethany. No, we're not going right now. Lazarus is going to die. We're not going right now. He had instructions to delay because God had a bigger plan. He had instructions. He didn't move until God told him to move. Where do you think he got that direction from? Reading the stars? He got that direction by spending time with the one he had put himself under his authority. I'm going to say this, and this is not going to win friends and influence people more than likely. Maybe it will influence people because hopefully this is God, not me. If the average Christian family 
If we came to church on Sunday morning, this has been my observation, and we were dressed appropriate to the function and role that we serve in our family, the men would come in skirts and the women would wear a suit and tie. I'm talking about functionally. That's what we'd look like. We've let that infiltrate. Jesus said, no, I'm equal with God, but I'm putting myself under His authority because it's under His authority, it's under His reign that the power goes forth. It's under His authority and it's under His reign. Men, if we could just stand up and be the spiritual leaders that we've called to be and not hold on to our rights and not live for ourselves anymore, but in be engaged in the spiritual matters of our home and not turn that over to our wife because after all, she's the feely one. She's the one who has emotions. She's the one who recognizes that maybe we need to depend on God more than I do. That's not true. You should be the one to recognize that. You should be at the front of that saying, Oh Lord God, I've got to get direction from You. I've got to spend some time with You. I've got to know You. I want my children to know You through watching me. I want to shepherd my wife. We've talked about this time and again. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 2, I'll raise up a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Rule without shepherding is tyranny. Shepherding without rule is chaos. The Holy Spirit will strike the balance in the men who have a heart bent toward Him. If the women are leading the home, it's not the woman's fault, it's the man's fault. There's not a thing that God calls you and I to do that He does not empower you to do. And because we've advocated our role and because we've left the vacuum, many of our ladies have rushed to fill it. After all, somebody's got to lead. That's a mistake, by the way. But somebody's got to lead, goes the thinking. Somebody's got to take the spiritual command of this house. Somebody's got to set the tone. Somebody's got to set the agenda. Somebody's got to craft a vision. Somebody's got to pray. Somebody's got to crack open the Bible. Somebody's got to share. Somebody's got to tell us who Jesus is. I'll do it. You say, well, you know what? My wife combats me tooth and nail on that. Let me tell you this. Here's the deal. That's a weakness for her that the Holy Spirit will let her overcome. But it does not, does not absolve you and I for the right and the call and the responsibility to lead. And our wives cannot and must not be blamed for that. And the reason they must not be blamed for that is, is there's no way that God would call you to do something and did not empower you to do it. Where He guides, He provides does, God does not call the equip, but He does quit equip the called. He'll flat do it. Because of that, the roles are so messed up in our church house. Look what is happening to society. Look, what, look at the unbelievable desecration that we're doing to our society. It's going under by the minute. Why? Because this mind that should be inside the church house is not inside the church house. This mind in you that says, I set aside my rights, my career is important, earning a living for my family is important, that's my responsibility, but it's not nearly as important as leading my family spiritually. I'm called to do that. The Bible says that the head of Christ is God, the head of Christ, uh, uh, man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man. That's what it says. We can toy with that. We can argue about that. We can contort. We can move. We can shift. We can do all the things that we want to do with that. And we can get funny with the text, but that's exactly what the text says. 
And Jesus said, here's power. Power comes from putting aside my rights, not asserting them or throwing them in somebody's face. Can I say this to you? Can I say this to you? We're spiritual rebels. We've got to quit that immediately. Contrast to kings. Contrast to kings. Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David one day. The throne of David one day. But the first king that came along was, what was his name? Saul. It could have been him. Alright, forget that you've read the narrative. Just forget it. Let me set forth the case of these two kings. Let's set forth the case. I'm going to give you a multiple choice test. You pick the one whose lineage lives on. So much so that Jesus gets to sit on His throne one day. You pick the one. Let me give you the two guys. First guy takes matters into his own hands. Offers a sacrifice prematurely. Samuel's on his way, the prophet. He offers a sacrifice prematurely before Samuel gets there because Samuel's the only one who's ordained by God to do it. But he says, oh, I want to worship the Lord and we want to offer up a sacrifice so we can get God's blessing on us. So he offers up the sacrifice prematurely, the wrong man to do it, and Samuel comes on the scene and says, man, what did you just do? Oh, I wanted to worship the Lord. and We didn't have time to wait for you. And so I took matters into my own hands. You ever heard this saying? Don't go to thinking because you'll weaken the team. Coaches on successful teams don't need people who think. They need people who execute the plan. And so he says, okay. And he offered up. He says, oh man, you've messed up big time. You've messed up big time. What? David goes on sees one of his subjects. He's, he's not in battle. There are people all fighting for his cause. He gets a little lax, walks up at the top of the palace, it towers over every building in Jerusalem, sees a young woman there that he desires, winds up manipulating circumstances, commits adultery with her, then turns around and fathers a child out of that union, finds out and says, Oh, buddy, her husband's coming back. I'll try to cover up my sin. Here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll get him drunk, and he'll, I'll pull him in, and we'll get him intoxicated and all that side, and he'll go back home, he'll be with his wife, and they'll think it was his child. Uriah is so loyal to David, he wouldn't do it. I'm not going to go and do this and go back home into the arms of my wife when my fellow countrymen are fighting. And David says, Man, he won't cooperate with my scheme. Here's what I'll do. I have one of my generals, generals go out there, and let me instruct you what to do. When the battle gets to the top of the fray, retreat. Pull back from him. Leave him out there by himself so he gets killed. He commits adultery and murder and tries to cover it up. Without you knowing the narrative, who gets to sit on whose throne? Whose throne lasts? Which one endures? And if we were honest and we had integrity, you know who we'd pick? I'll go with the guy who offered up the premature sacrifice. Guess who God picked? The murderer and the adulterer was picked. You know why? Because that was an act of rebellion and God cannot work through rebels. You would think if anything you would lose the kingdom from adultery and murder. But the rebel lost the kingdom. It was an act of rebellion and God said the sin of rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And we'll bring it home right here where the rubber meets the road. Ladies, the reason that you can submit to your husband's leadership, no matter what kind of leadership he's offering, is because Jesus did it. You are equal with your husband. You are not less. You are not diminished. 
You have no lower standing as far as God's concerned. Just like Jesus is equal with the Father, you are equal with your husband. You are not less than Him. You are not disregarded by Him by God. You are not subservient to Him as far as worth or value is concerned. You are precious to the Lord and you're just as precious to the Lord as He is. But if you regard that as something to be held on to, you will find none of God's power. If you empty yourself of that and come under His leadership and His authority, that's where you'll find God. And you can do that as hard as it may seem because Jesus did it. And if He has His way with you, you will do it. I've got a personal application. I've shared this with you before. I'm going to share it again. My dad died of cancer after we found out after 27 months after he was diagnosed. And most of you or many of you walked through that journey with us through my dad's uh, home going. God gave me the privilege of preaching my father's funeral. And I used his name. His name was Jack. J-A-C-K. And I used his name as the outline for the funeral message. As an acrostic. J is for Jesus. I'm thankful for Jesus. A, I'm thankful for all of you because all of our friends and family were there in that funeral home where we had the service. And I'm so thankful for all of you. C, I'm thankful for cancer. And the reason I was thankful for cancer is because cancer is what God used to prove to me that my dad's faith was real. See, I went out with the home I grew up in, and I'm thankful for the home I grew up in, but my home I grew up in, my dad had no time for Jesus whatsoever. There was not enough of Jesus in his life for me to have any confidence he was on his way to heaven. He was a self-absorbed man who lived for himself. Like we all do, absent a surrendered relationship with Christ. Had he been killed in an automobile accident, I could have got up at the funeral and I'd have said, I don't know. It's up or down. I don't know. Had he been killed abruptly and something happened to him? But you know what God did? God was so gracious that he was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. You usually get 6 to 8 months when you're diagnosed at stage 4. We got 27 months. 27 months of clarity. 27 months of, of almost being no... There were no side effects from the chemotherapy he was under. None. He never got sick, not one time. And he and I had discussions about Jesus. And he gave us 27 months to show me and to him and the people around him that his faith was genuine and it was real. I'll take nothing for that because I'm confident my dad this morning is in heaven. So I was thankful for cancer. I can tell you that right now. But let me just say this to you. All the while, my mother, my mother is the youngest of three daughters. Her... She's the third of three. And the, the aunt that's nearest to her, the one that's in the middle, is probably 15 or so years older, somewhere thereabouts. If my aunt hears this tape, I'm going to be in trouble if I got that wrong. But somewhere around 10 or 11 years or something like that separates them in age. So my mother was born much later than them. When my mother was five years old, her dad died. Her dad died of a ruptured ulcer in his stomach. Something that probably wouldn't kill you today. She was five years old when that happened. My grandmother was a worker already, but they were in abject poverty. And because of that, my grandmother had a very close, nurturing, protective relationship with my mother, and understandably so. She gets married at a very young age, and about a year and a half later has me. 
And my dad lived for my dad. My dad lived for baseball. My dad lived for softball. My dad lived for golf. And we always went to church with my grandmother and my mother and me in the back seat. I cannot count the number of times. I cannot count the number of times I heard these kind of conversations. My mother would start going down the road of griping about my dad and his selfishness. And my grandmother would stop her and say, wait just a minute, hold on just a second now. Hold on, hold on. You love him. You love him and we pray for him. And she kept him. She was the older woman in Titus chapter 2. She said, this is the older woman role that my grandmother fulfilled. And she said, don't start that. Don't start that. Well, if anybody could have had an offense against my dad and his selfishness, it would have been my protective grandmother. But I remember her interacting with him and she was always so nice to him and always served and came down there and brought us meals. So we get in from church. He's sleeping late till 11 o'clock. He gets up, comes strolling in there with a cigarette in his mouth. My grandmother goes and toils and labors, fixes a delicious southern fried meal for him, brings it down to our house and feeds him so he can go off and indulge on the golf course. And every time my mother, my grandmother prayed for him and my grandfather affirmed him and he never let that kind of bitterness in my mother take root. Never. And I stand before you today knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that the only reason I don't come from a broken home is because of the faithfulness of my grandmother. She was Titus chapter 2 all over. Because you know what? You can fuss and gripe and complain. But the best thing you can do is pray. See, my mother's conduct could either confirm the gospel or it could be contrary to the gospel, one or the other. And by God's grace, she chose to let it confirm it. She put aside her rights to be angry. She put aside her rights to be bitter. She put aside her rights to be embittered toward my dad. She had reasons for it, but she put aside them because God was doing a work inside her heart. And He got us all the way to 70 living like that. Then He gets cancer and we find out that the faith that we thought lied maybe was not even existent, was maybe a little bit dormant, or maybe He got saved during His cancer journey. I don't know. But I know this. He died confessing Christ. I say that to say this. Is your life and your confession and your witness confirming the gospel or are you a walking contradiction to it? If you have an employer and you gripe and fuss and complain about who you work for all the time, you're under their authority. Or maybe you're a business owner and you, your customers just get on to you to no end. Listen, I was in the banking business for 16 years. You go to mess with people's money? Oh my goodness, I've been cussed out by every professional. Men, women, boy and girl. Right to the coals, face to face. I had one guy, we went to another office one time and he wanted to do something and I couldn't do it. And they called me for authorization and said, he said, and I said, no, we can't do that. And she called me back and she said, you know what? He walked out of the office livid and he's heading for you. I said, well, thank the Lord. So I kept a little putter in the corner of my office and I held it closed just in case I might need it. I called the police, which the police department was right near our office. He said, we can't do anything until he does something to you. Well, that's comforting. I said, well, after he kills me, y'all call the police. Sorry about that, John. I'm just joking. All right, and so you're not one of them anyway. But let me tell you this. Here's the deal. So we we wind up. What we wind up doing is we'll badmouth our boss, or we'll badmouth, or we'll have a sorry attitude toward the people that we work for and with. If you do that, if you do that, 
your life is contrary to the gospel, it does not confirm it. It does not confirm it. But to do that, to come under authority and say, Lord, everything that I'd like to get from those that I'm under authority of, affirmation, encouragement, maybe some appreciation, I choose to get from you. See it? Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. What does the text say? There's comfort, there's consolation and love from Jesus. If you draw that from Him, it doesn't matter who you don't get it from in the rest of your life. It doesn't matter. Power comes from being under authority, not in authority. We jockey for authority. We jockey for position and we resent the authority we're under. Do you know how powerful this is? Let me tell you how powerful this is. Let me tell you how powerful this is. Can you tell you how powerful this is? It's so powerful that the Scriptures say that a wife who has an unbelieving husband can be won by the conduct of the wife without having to say one single solitary word. 1 Peter 3 is the reference. You submit to Him. Hey, you don't know what He's done. You don't know how selfish He is. Wait a minute. There's your, there's your reference point. Don't let your reference point. Don't let your reference point be somebody else or what they think or well-intended people who are tired of your suffering. Don't let the reference point be opinions. Don't let the reference point see what you see in others. Let the reference point be Calvary. If the reference points to Calvary and we get there and we draw from the strength that we can receive from a Savior, it did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but emptied Himself so that He could be filled with all the fullness of God as the infinite God-man and went with God's agenda. And guess what the results of that... What is the result of that kind of life? Well, the text goes on to read that therefore God has highly exalted Him so much so that He's at the Father's right hand and that one day on the other side of eternity every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the results of a life like that. That's what it means. Oh dear ones, is your life, does your life confirm the gospel or is your life a contradiction to the gospel? It's one or the other. All other people's salvation is contingent upon me? No. 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 I'm not saying that. But God wants to use you. He wants to glorify His great name through you. Jesus Christ was a meek man. And we interpret meekness for weakness. But the definition of meekness is strength under control. He can look at Pilate in the eye and stand there with his hands behind his back tied there and listen to the accusations and not say one single word because he knew who he was. And believer, when you know who you are, you're a son and daughter of the living God. 
And God's graced you with an opportunity. Let's get the roles right. Men, put on a suit and tie. And ladies, adorn yourself with the gospel as the fragrant flower that you are in the garden of God. God does not call upon you to do this because He doesn't like you. He calls upon you to do this because He loves you. And He wants to protect you and nurture you in a way that you couldn't be nurtured otherwise. And for those of you who have hard relationships, or maybe you have a husband that's not following God, or maybe you've had one, or maybe you've got a boss who's nothing short than a tyrant, the guarantee of Scripture is this. When you lay aside your rights and you have the mind of Christ, and you draw from Him, you will find comfort, consolation, and love. And all the things that you would like to get out of those you are in authority under, you will get from Him. And you will find out that that's more than enough.